by March 10th, it was pretty clear that the world was changing in a pretty substantial way. And what we did was we just went into a mode of triage where we, where we, where we said, what do we need to do for our partners, for our restaurants? Welcome to Office Hours by Business Class from American Express. Each episode features innovative entrepreneurs and experts discussing how to navigate today's business challenges. That was Ben Leventhal, co-founder and CEO of digital reservation service Resi, part of the American Express family. In today's episode, he shares how he tackled a hard-to-swallow situation with new innovations. Recorded during our live Office Hours Q&A, our conversation is guided by Chris Cracciolo, SVP GM of Global Membership Rewards and Loyalty Benefits at American Express. Please note, views expressed here belong to the guests interviewed and do not necessarily reflect those of American Express. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm Chris Cracciolo, Senior Vice President of Membership Awards and Lifestyle Benefits at American Express. And today I have the real pleasure of interviewing Ben Leventhal, the co-founder and CEO of Resi, a restaurant booking platform that leverages technology to uh, create a, a whole new level of hospitality. Uh, Resi was named one of Fast Company's most innovative companies in 2017 and again in 2019, quite an accomplishment, and chosen as one of the 50 startups to watch in 2018 by Built in NYC. Um, ben also co-founded Eater, the James Beard award-winning food and restaurant media outlet started in 2005, later acquired by Vox Media in 2013. Um, about a year ago, uh, ben and the Resi team were acquired by American Express. Ben now serves as the VP and general manager of American Express Global Dining. And we are super happy to have him and his team uh, as part of the American Express family. Um, so as many of you know, we'll be answering questions that you have submitted all week. In addition, please feel free to submit questions right there below on the app. And we will do our very, very best to get to as many of them as possible. Um, so let's get going, man. Do it. Um, so first off, you've spent like virtually your entire career in the dining space. Um, tell us about that journey from Eater to, to, to Resi. Um, how did, how did, uh, you know, those platforms evolve? What drove you to, to, to go into that space and do what you did? It's been a natural fit for me. I mean, I had the, I had the, the, you know, out of school, I was at uh, Viacom and I did a bunch of things and there was that, that didn't click. And, um, and I just kept getting drawn into restaurants and into, in particular, um, talking about restaurants and wanting to support restaurants. I've not really gotten the itch to be an operator, but since the pre-eater days when I was doing just sort of different editorial projects that, that all led up to Eater, I just wanted to talk about restaurants and immerse myself in the world of restaurants. Um, I've always found it intriguing. Um, you know, restaurateurs and chefs are these sort of perennially tortured creatures who are trying to deliver hospitality against all odds. And I've always found their stories to be really um, interesting and, and, and um, and inspiring. And so it's just been this area that I'm, I'm lucky enough to have been drawn to and I'm, and I'm, and 
and I'm really lucky that it's turned into a career. It certainly has. And, and um, just out of curiosity, was there, was there any like one chef or restaurateur that, that you really just, you know, had a, you know, a, a, a liking for a passion for what they were doing? I know there's well, so many that you deal with. I mean, you know, in the early days of Eater, one restaurateur that we were obsessed with was Keith McNally, who um, has really given New York some of its most iconic restaurants and, and is the guy responsible for sort of the, the archetype French bistro that um, America knows. So he, Keith McNally created Balthazar, um, uh, Lucky Strike, um, he was, he, along with his wife, created Odeon. You know, these, um, these are places that a lot of people maybe don't realize are sort of the model for all French bistros in the U.S., but in many ways they are. Um, and we were always, I've always been obsessed with him and, and greatly admired him as a restaurateur because he does, he creates spaces that you never want to leave. You walk in, you're just hit with the energy of this place and you feel like you immediately understand that you're in the right place at the right time and you just you can't wait to sit down and you never want to leave and um, i think that's a hallmark of great restaurants and i've always thought that he does it better than anyone creates those moments um and so he's an early kind of hero of uh, of mine and of and of eater and um and you know i think to this day he's producing some of the best restaurants out there. That's great. I, I can sense your, your passion just <laughs> oozing out as you, as you talk about it, um, which is fantastic. So I, I guess my next question is, is around like during your journey on at Eater and Resi, were there any moments of self-doubt where you're like, man, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, you know, this is the right mission or, you know, maybe I have to adapt my approach. Was there, did you have any moments like that? Tons. I mean, it's, <laughs> if you don't have those moments and you're not, um, you're not being honest enough with yourself, I think, as an entrepreneur. I mean, the darkest moments are the moments for me where, you know, somebody you admire or, you know, for Resi, a restaurant that I love said no to Resi. You know, when the early days, the, the team and some of them were lucky enough to still have, but some of the team in the early days knew that, you know, there was like an extra bounty that was placed on, on my favorite restaurants. Cause I, I was just so fixated on getting them on the platform and um, because I loved them because I wanted to be in business with those restaurants and the moments where, you know, an operator you really admire or a restaurant that you go to all the time says, no, those are the moments where, Dagger to the got, heart. You just got. You guys got to. You want to pack it all up and go home, uh, <laughs> and you've got to kind of grind through them. And and so I guess the converse of that, it was. It, was there a moment that um, you were just like, man, I, we got this. Like we're we're grooving now. Like this is happening. Well, I mean, I, I got to give credit to some of the early restaurants that said yes to us, and and you know, it, it, it's not. They're part. They're hardwired into the history. You know. Um, Charlie Bird and, and Pasquale Jones, like Ryan and, and Robert, the proprietors of those restaurants, were a yes right out of the gate to us. And, 
you know, Carlos Suarez at Rosemary's, you remember those yeses, you know, those are those guys that, that say yes first, that um, believe in you before it's safe to believe in you. Like, you, you know, you never forget those. Um, and then, you know, when some of the big operators give you that, that kind of stamp of approval, um, it means a lot. You know, we had, we had um, Shea Panisse was an early partner on, in, in Berkeley. And, you know, that's a, as iconic a restaurant yeah. as it gets. Um, you know, we worked really hard to get Danny Meyer's business. And, um, you know, we're incredibly proud to be, um, to be his partner now. And, and, and that, was a, that was a key moment for us because, you know, as, as Danny goes, so goes the restaurant industry. And, and so I think it was certainly um, an important moment for us. But, but more than anything else, it's just the restaurants that are willing to take a leap of faith with you are the ones that stand out to me. Completely makes sense. I, I mean, I think it's those small wins that, that kind of power you through, right? Yeah, um, so, so as I had mentioned, you know, just over a year ago now, um, Resi was acquired by American Express. Um, um, terrific milestone, I, I think, for, for you and the Resi family, as well as American Express. Um, tell us a little bit about, like, what that experience has been like for you. And, <laughs> and, and don't, don't hold anything back because I promise I won't share with anyone. Um, well, you're, the one, you're somebody who, who will know if I'm lying. So, <laughs> <laughs> fair, um, fair enough. Fair enough. It has been exhilarating, um, at times confusing and frustrating, but for the most part, um, incredible. You know, from the earliest days of us cre of us founding Resi, we have have had American Express as you know uh, a, a north star. Um, a model, um, a standard that we would hold ourselves to. And I've always felt that, um, you know, we, if we could develop a brand with the kind of um, durability and integrity and, and, and quality of American Express, and if we could sort of have a, develop a brand that would signify some of the same things, especially, you know, in, in dining and, and, and in hospitality, then we would have something substantial. So, um, we've always had a tremendous amount of respect for the company, for American Express. So, the, so more than anything else, it's been really exciting. You know, operationally, we've had to adjust. It's different running a startup and being part um, of a humongous global company with, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what the current number is, but something like 65,000 employees. That's, a, that's it. That's, <laughs> that's a big change, you know, um, and, and that has impacts across every aspect of the business top to bottom but um, as you know we're focused on um, using the, the scale of American Express and and, and um, everything that Amex has at its disposal um, we're focused on bringing those things to bear for our restaurants and and for our customers on the resi side so it's been great that that's uh, that's great to hear you you're warming my heart man you're warming <laughs> my heart um, yeah I, you know I um, I, I you know, it can't be lost that, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, you kind of live and die by the decisions you make, right? Um, at a big company like American Express, you said it, like global global 100 company, you know, 65,000 employees, um, you know, you, you don't call the shots like you do at a startup, but, you know, you're also not worrying about whether or not you can make payroll next week, right? So there are those trade-offs, but, um, you know, we're, we're happy to have you and we, uh, 
we think there's a great mission ahead. Um, so I, I want to pivot a little bit um, because, you know, um, the world has changed quite a lot. But before we get into how the world has changed and, and, and the impact of that on, on the dining business at American Express and Resi and, and the dining industry, I, I love to um, go back to earlier in the year, which feels like it was a lifetime ago. But like, let's talk about January, February and tell me a little bit about um, like what what the mission, like what you were setting out to do. What were the goals and objectives that that you were striving for, um, you know, in a year that uh, obviously got turned upside down? But like, what was what was the mission back then? Um, well, I mean, obviously, you know, the mission is always to connect the world's best customers, and the world's best restaurants, and, and, and really define hospitality through technology. And I think um, certainly that is the same. But what's changed is, you know, we were focused on a lot of product development that, that assumed people were going to be sitting in dining rooms, um, that assumed that the demand landscape for, in, you know, for visiting restaurants was going to, was going to be uh, only improving, you know, meaning people would be the insatiable appetite people have for dining would continue to to grow, and you know that was something we would capitalize on. We were certainly ex planning on expanding our base of restaurants very substantially. Um, you know, our growth goals are always are always very aggressive, um, and we had a lot of um, you know we had a very exciting um, uh, slate of events planned. Um, you know, lots of which were were designed to connect customers and restaurants and and uh, and help and empower restaurants to deliver a really interesting exciting um, and intimate experiences um, but you know we all of it was based on the assumption that we'd be dining out and spending time with each other and <laughs> in close proximity um, and uh, and obviously we're, it's a different reality today well we uh we will again at some point um, hopefully in the not too distant future I think um, Dining and, and breaking bread with friends and family is, is just part of human nature and it's here to stay. And, you know, I personally don't see that, that changing. Um, so, so thank you for that context. Now um, let, let's pivot to like the reality that we're all living in now. Um, you know, and the dining industry is um, one of the hardest hit industries, uh, you know, during this pandemic. Um, I think the last stat I, I heard was that there was 11 million uh, roughly 11 million independent restaurants in the U.S. alone, um, or 11, they employ 11 million people, rather. Um, and, you know, many of those restaurants are not open. Many of those restaurants are at, at um, low capacity. Um, and the implications to the supply chain, and if you think about um, food delivery and everything else, uh, is, is pretty tremendous. Um, and, you know, the Resi and American Express dining business, obviously not spared in that. Um, tell us um, uh, your thinking early on when this pandemic started and, and sort of like, what was your reaction? When did you know it was, you know, it was as serious as it was and what sort of actions did you, did you take? Yeah. So, you know, I would say we really saw the world, the, the industry fall off a cliff in, you know, in the first and second week of, of March. Um, you know, we saw some signs that things were getting shaky um, in Asia. Obviously, we were all watching that. And, you know, uh, we, we saw definitively um, COVID and its effects sort of um, uh, 
reach the United States first in Seattle, and we saw Seattle, um, we saw business really completely fall off a cliff. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, really literally one night to the next uh, restaurant um, covers were down 75%. Uh, it really happened very fast. You sort of saw, you saw a little bit of shakiness down 20%, but then it just disappeared. Um, and so we saw it happen in Seattle first. And, and, and honestly, even when we saw it happen in Seattle, the attitude of a lot of restaurateurs in New York and in some of the other big cities was, okay, let's hunker down. Um, you know, let's get through the next couple of weeks um, and we'll see on the other side. And then, and then New York and LA and San Francisco and Chicago and, and, and lots of other places, the business just evaporated. And, and it evaporated because cities started to shut down, obviously. So, so you know, uh, by, by, March, by March 10th, it was pretty clear that the world was changing in a pretty substantial way. And what we did was we just went into a mode of triage where we, where we, where we said, what do we need to do for our partners, for our restaurants? You know, these guys are, um, these guys are in the middle of something unprecedented and catastrophic. So what do we need to do? Um, and some of that was just triage, you know, some of that was just, okay, we got, we, you know, resi, resi seats several million people a week. So we got to make sure these restaurants have an orderly fashion of shutting it down. Um, so there was some really early, just straight triage stuff. And then we went into a mode of talking about what a restaurant's going to need, you know, what a restaurant's going to need tomorrow and in two weeks and, and in four weeks. And, and what, and then eventually we started talking about, you know, what a restaurant's going to need on the other side of this. And so that led us to, I think, kind of thinking about it in two, in two big buckets. One is in terms of the short term, we have to help restaurants focus on uh, safety, safety protocols, um, and doing things that ultimately will, uh, will drive, will create comp confidence uh, with their customers and, and customers will feel safe coming back. And so we focused on things like mobile waiting list and capacity monitors and things that signaled that allowed restaurants to signal we're on top of this, we're managing it. Um, and you don't have to worry about visiting our restaurant. Now, um, some of those tools, um, you know, it would take going to March 10th, it would take a while for restaurants to need some of those tools because the shutdown was, was many, many weeks. Um, but, but as, as we started to see, uh, green shoots, as you like to say, we um, we saw those kinds of tools um, go into use. And then, of course, the other, the other just as important, if not more important, question is what a restaurant's going to look like long term. And and so you know you're seeing us develop functionality around restaurants connecting to consumers outside of the restaurant. Uh, Resi at home is 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 I think in the long run um, something that we have a ton of conviction around. We think that at home dining is going to probably for many restaurants be 50% or more of their total business. Um, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's a short term circumstance. I think the, the silver lining of this crisis for restaurants is that the model was, was broken on uh, February 1st and on March 1st, and it's still broken, but it's very rare that an industry gets an opportunity to reset. Um, and I do think that's what you're seeing happen with restaurants. And, and so the model is going to change. And, 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 you know, to your question of, of how we're responding, um, 
we're, we're listening very closely to restaurant partners and to consumers as well to understand what, what behavior is going to be in. And we're, um, we're evolving our, uh, our platform to, to suit that reality. Looking for new ways to keep up with the latest business trends and insights? Business Class from American Express is a new educational resource to help today's business leaders adapt to the current economic environment. To view compelling stories, timely tips, and inspiring insights from industry experts, leaders, and street-savvy entrepreneurs, visit amex.co slash businessclass. I think you and the team responded very quickly at the very beginning of COVID um, to pivot. Uh, and I, you know, you, you said triage. I, you know, I, I, there was some of that, but I think there was also a lot of forward, forward thinking and how to support the restaurants. Um, what's your view on like those early days and um, what that means for restaurant relationships, like for Resi's restaurant relationships into the future? Um, you know, sort of the response uh, out of the gate on on COVID. Look, I hope it, I think it's 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 a good if you have the luxury of conducting business for the long run, you know, and, and I would say that as a part of American Express, it's something that Resi definitely can do now. Um, I think it means that we backed our restaurants from day one. You know, when we said we're not charging you any fees, um, when we were able to 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 double down on that and say we're not charging you any fees for the rest of the year um, when when, you know, we were doing. We were doing uh, daily emails to our partners and, and we were holding phone calls with our partners um, just to provide, to try and provide answers and resources. The, you know, I hope it helped us create longstanding relationships with our restaurants. We've, we've always said that, you know, Resi is built by restaurants for restaurants and th these moments are defining, I think. And I think for any, for any business, you know, you gotta you gotta step up um and hopefully our, our partners saw that and, and are seeing that and you know we're going to continue to try to deliver um in an outsized way for for these for these guys because um they're the reason we're in the business that's great and certainly um you know the the move of just going all in with a, a really hard customer focus during times of crisis um, I personally believe is, is the right strategy. And, you know, I've, I've certainly seen that in, in the way uh, you and the team have approached dining. Um, so this is, uh, you know, to your point, unprecedented, um, you know, for, for many industries, um, you know, particularly for dining, what are some of the innovations that you, that you see happening now that you think are going to, going to last? You, you mentioned at home, you mentioned, takeout delivery, um, you know, is that, is that it? Are there other things that, that restaurants need to do to adapt to sort of a new environment? And, and to your, your point about, you know, the model wasn't, wasn't terrific prior to COVID, right? Um, thin margins, um, you know, uh, trying to fill seats. Um, you know, what, do you, what, what sort of lessons do you think are being learned and, and how does that change the, the future of dining? I think that the, that that one positive thing, if if there's only one positive thing, you know, in this crisis for hospitality, it's that it has sparked a ton of innovation. I mean, I, I you know, restaurateurs, <laughs> the business is so bad that most restaurateurs, if you ask them on a good day, how are you doing? They'll say, yeah, I'm surviving, you know. So <laughs> survival instincts come naturally to these people. Uh, and so, so that is leading to a ton of innovation. Um, 
some of it is come some of it is innovation that we're seeing sort of show up in the in the in the in the product so to speak meaning you know things like um things like at home and meal kits and um you know zoom calls with chefs uh or supposed to say video video conferencing calls with chefs um uh these are kinds of things that um are i think gonna last you know i think rest restaurants are thinking about all kinds of ways of using hospitality to connect with people and i think that these are some really intriguing new ways so it, you know i i really think the key for all restaurants right now is to try things the thing about this crisis is if you do something amazing like something totally crazy like Un, un, unfathomable and it goes well nobody's going to forget but if you do something crazy and amazing and it completely and it completely fails nobody's going to remember <laughs> and <laughs> right and so I've, i'll say i'll say it again and again like take you know these guys restaurants that are taking swings are are doing are are are, are doing the right thing so you know it's at home it's chefs making themselves available in other ways. It's thinking about um, it's thinking about premium restaurant brand as more of a luxury product than a restaurant. You know, it's thinking about um, it's starting to compare restaurants to fashion houses. You know, if you've spent if if you're a premium restaurant and you've spent uh, if you've invested heavily and aggressively in brand development and, and developing a particular style of hospitality and curating the world of the dining room. You know, you've picked plates, you've picked music, you've picked, in some cases, um, scents, you've picked, you've picked all uniforms, you create, you've created a world. Um, you, there's no reason why you can't, you can't connect your customers to that world in ways other than selling them a, a roast chicken on a plate that they have to visit you to to order you know and um and so i think we're just we're starting to see it and we're going to continue to see it but it's about understanding the essence of your brand which is to say that it's a luxury product and and just spinning that out in a hundred different ways and i think the comparison the reason i like the comparison to to fashion is because when you think about how a really <clears throat> high-end fashion brand works and monetizes they've found a way to reach customers at many, many different price points. You know, there's, there's a couple of people that wear, you know, couture clothing from a, from a high end fashion house, but a lot of people wear t-shirts or wear, or buy perfume or, or, you know, buy, buy, you know, um, purses or underwear or whatever else. So that kind of thinking is how restaurants, um, need to, are shifting towards and um and i think it's pretty promising um thank you that was that was terrific what what's your what's your take on on outdoor dining you know here um in manhattan um as you've seen um i, I know I, you know i have your list of restaurants you you've hit over the last 10 days here um you know it's it's all about outdoor dining and it's actually quite unique right um um you know taking over streets and sidewalks to do that is that um, is that here to stay? In your opinion, is that is that sort of like the way of the future? And you know, in cities like 
New York, it gets cold at some point, right? And so what, what happens then? Um, I think it's, I think it's not going to go, it's not going to recede all the way back to pre COVID levels, but I do, I do think, you know, the, the, the extent to which New York is becoming, uh, you know, sort of an open air food court right now, I don't think that's sustainable. Um, obviously when the weather gets cold, most restaurants are not suited for, you know, heat outdoor seating with heat lamps and, 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 you know, wind shelter and everything else. Um, but I like it. And I think that it's, you know, hopefully a lot of these things we'll see, we'll see them recede a little bit, but not all the way back. I think you're going to see the same thing in delivery. You know, are we going to see every, every restaurant everywhere in the world doing delivery into the, like in the long run, you know, no, but we're going to see more restaurants embrace it um, because they're starting, they can start to understand the model. I think the same thing's going to happen um, with outdoor seating. On the other hand, you know, maybe we do go the way of some of the great European cities where um, outdoor seating kind of is a 12 month, um, 12 month thing. And I think that'd be awesome. You know, some of the streets in New sure York right. right now are so fun to walk down because they've just got this, they're like re-energized, you know, yeah. um, it's just, it's just so fun to walk, to walk in the, in the West Village or, or, you know, in lots of neighborhoods where you just see like people are out and about and there's just like that energy that I think a lot of people have been craving. And I think that outdoor dining is, is a place where you can get it right now, which is great. Uh, I totally agree. I, I'm really enjoying it as well. And my hope is, you know, like the restaurant industry has to adapt. So do big cities like, like New York. So um, hopefully we see, we see more positive change like that um, into the future. Um, so what's some, um, what's sort of your, what's your, your hope for the future of dining? Like what, what's uh you know, what's your aspiration for this industry? Uh, my aspiration for the, for the restaurant industry is that it comes back better than ever. And I know I am very confident that it will, you know, I think we are not going to this going to, as a people be reprogrammed into in, in, in a way that where we, where we don't crave restaurants, where we don't crave these moments of joy um, and entertainment. And I, I believe fully that we will go back and the industry will be stronger than ever. It's going to take some time and we're going to see a ton of restaurants close along the way. Um, but the industry is determined and, um, and I, the, the restaurateurs and chefs that I talk to are, are focused on finding a way through and coming out stronger. And so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see, I'm excited to see, you know, it's the, I'm excited in the long run to see that, to see that happen. That's great. Um, I, um, you know, I'm curious. Um, I've probably, um, you know, I've tried every local spot that's been open here um, over the last, you know, two months and even tried my own hand at making, uh, making food at home, which I'd say it was um, definitely mixed results. Um, what, what's your go-to COVID meal, man? <laughs> Um, any, any tips, new recipes? <laughs> so my, co my go-to COVID meal, I, th I I'm sure you're the same way, but my COVID quarantine experience has been divided up into some various phases and phase one, I was like all in on pasta and pizza and like <laughs> carbs, I man, Italian comfort food was like 80% of the food that I was eating. Now, for me, that's not a sustainable model. 
So then I sort of then, and by the way, those food, like you can get amazing pizza. Um, you know, we have a, we have an app, we have, I, I think we're allowed to say, cause it's cross hammock. We have this, we have, you know, this offer that we have with Gold Belly. Gold Belly is delivering some of like the best things that food items that you can ship. Gold Belly is delivering them. So you could just go and like, look at the pizza that they, they're shipping to you. There is amazing, like A plus pizza that you can get. So the first phase is just like discovering all this cool stuff. Then I, then we just started cooking and, um, and we're cooking simple stuff. And where we really landed is like, we want to cook food that is delicious and healthy, but more than anything else requires like the fewest number of dirty bowls and <laughs> knives and cutting boards because like those like seven bowl meals, I don't, yes. I'm just staring down the cleaning afterwards. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, you should you should include me in your quarantine bubble, man, because I love to clean. You know, I, I, I'll take you. You know, you get the meal done, and I'll, I'll do the dishes. I'm, I'm happy with that. Could be a partnership. <laughs> I think it would, might be. Um, all right, let me let me see here if there's any other questions that were submitted that we didn't get to. Um. Or Ben, if there's anything that that you want to hit that I missed, let me see. Um, I think there was a there was an interesting. I think I saw something scroll through around the question of you know what happens to small neighborhood restaurants because not every restaurant can turn itself into a luxury brand, and I think it's a good question. And I think ultimately the answer is for neighborhood restaurants, there's a different kind of evolution that happens. I think first of all realistically a lot of them are closed a lot of them are going to close i mean you know you've seen projections the most pessimistic projections are like 90 percent. the most optimistic are you know 15 or 20 percent. but you've seen the projections around how many restaurants are going to close and even if you like the low-end projections it's a huge number of restaurants yeah. so you're going to lose a lot of those restaurants that are neighborhood joints no question about it unfortunately i think that the way that those restaurants evolve or one way that I'd like to see them evolve is in a similar way that for, for high-end restaurants, it's about that brand. I think for really good neighborhood places, it's about the connection to the neighborhood. So you'd see them do more things for the neighborhood. You know, you'd see, you'd see a restaurant that you go to that's across the street from you and you go to a couple of times a week or that, you know, you, it's the first place that pops into your mind when you're just hungry and you need to sort of be in the warm embrace of, of a good meal, you know, you'd see those places do more things. You, you maybe that, maybe you start getting, you know, your vegetables from there. Maybe you start getting, um, you know, your, 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 you get chicken from there. They give you, you know, you get sort of tips on how to cook and what to cook and, and they start to know your patterns of eating a little bit more. And then all of a sudden you get a text from, you know, the general manager of the restaurant and they say, Hey, we got some really, amazing tomatoes in this week i'm going to send some over to you is this a personal experience not yet but i hope it will be soon you know i, I think that's i think a lot of, i think the neighborhood place have to be thinking that way you know from if you if you want to break it down to sort of the the brass tacks business explanation you need they need more shareable share of your dining spend they yeah. need per customer to be making more money 100 percent um, 
One other question that, that um, was submitted um, that I, I, I think is a good one. I, I want to get your perspective on as an entrepreneur, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, the thing about entrepreneurs is they're not, there's a lot of like really um, good books on this. Um, I rec I like the, a book that I, what is it called? Um, um, I'll think of the name before the end. But, uh, but the point is, entrepreneurs are not really as, as like aggressive with risk as I think a lot of people believe. In some ways, entrepreneurs are comfortable with risk, and like what you have to be comfortable with is making decisions and 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 having conviction in decisions. But a lot of times, like the risk, there's like micro risk, but 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 not huge, humongous risk. I think the risky things that we've done um, are about, I think, uh, putting all of a, putting a lot of resources against one restaurant or one project um, without us knowing for sure that it was going to pay off. You know, I think like the as an entrepreneur, especially if, if you're raising money from outside investors and from institutional investors, for sure, it's about hitting milestones, right? You, you either hit your milestone and you get to raise more money uh, or you don't hit your milestone and you turn off the lights. And so cash and 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 man hours are the real resources that you have so the risks are about betting on things that are not sure things and so i do and i so i i think you know it's definitely times where i made the team uncomfortable with the amount of work we spent on one particular restaurant or one particular feature before we had a strong sense that it was going to work i think uh, for the most part, I think we made the right calls. A couple times we got it wrong, but but that's how, like that's, in my opinion, that's what risk looks like um, in a startup context. Well, that that was um, that was great, and this has been a lot of fun, Ben. Um, <laughs> we we should we should do this again, maybe in next one on one. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your time um, um, to our audience. Thanks for joining. Um, hopefully, you got a lot out of this. Um, I know I did. Um, and, you know, stay tuned for uh, I think the next um, office hours is next Wednesday at the same time. So um, thank you all and um, take care. Hey, Chris. Thanks. Yeah. Later. Thanks for listening to Office Hours, part of business class from American Express. You can find a schedule of upcoming live episodes and learn more about business class from American Express by visiting amex.co slash office hours. That's amex.co slash office hours. Support for this podcast and the following message come from American Express. Small businesses are what keep our community together, which is why it's so important to help them succeed. American Express has created a platform that all small business owners can use to keep their dream alive. Standforsmall.com. They brought together 100 plus companies to provide offers and resources for things like shipping and deliveries, online solutions and marketing to help small business owners get back to doing what they do best. Standforsmall.com slash podcast powered by American Express.